Welcome to episode 57 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I am your co-host, Sarah Lucas. And I'm your co-host, Amanda. Whoop, not Amanda. Sorry, I've been doing interviews. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Conan. I finished editing the first Particulars episode today, so that will actually be up by the time this comes out. So if you've been waiting to see the first video episode that we have that's going to be up on YouTube, the link will be in this description. It will definitely be up. That is not the big announcement for the day, though, unfortunately. It's our positive announcement. So sad news is, uh, I'm sure some of you have noticed that I am not consistently a part of all of the podcasts. And and that I have been missing more episodes recently. So for the time being, I will not be a consistent co-host for this podcast. I hope to, in the future, be consistent um, and be a part of every episode. That's my goal. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very sad. I, I'm very frustrated and very sad about this. So I'm really going to miss this podcast. It's been a lot of fun. So I want to thank everyone who's made this podcast become what it is now. I want to thank Michael for inviting me to be a part of this podcast and Mandy being such a great co-host with the well the three of us it's been a wonderful experience for me that has enriched my life and I wish I could continue at this time but for my own sake I got to do what I got to do so we hope if you're uh find yourself free on a Sunday evening that you'll pop on and join us and of course so from this point, Sarah's going to be a pleasant surprise for everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, obviously, for our part, we're very grateful for all the work that Sarah has put in on this podcast, for her unique perspective, for her excitement at the very beginning. She was the first person that I went up to and was like, do you want to be a co-host? And they were like, yes, <laughs> this would be great and exciting to me, not a horrible, terrifying burden. I was so excited. <laughs> So she's still going to be around. And if you have a question now, you know, if you guys send in questions, if you want me to wait for your question until you know, Sarah will be here, for instance, you can put that in the email. So if you want her unique perspective on your question, by all means, just let us know. And we'll be able to do that. We waited a couple, we've done a couple of weeks without doing this. So I'm just going to go back to, you know, today is August 2nd. And as we record this, we are still experiencing record highs of COVID all over the place. Mm -hmm. My home state just passed about 2,000 deaths, I believe. Yeah. We passed 150,000 deaths this week nationwide. And meanwhile, every other first world country basically completely has this under control. And it appears to be almost exclusively mask use in those countries. There's countries that didn't even do the social isolation, but just did near 100% mask use. And it has worked there. So if you're listening and you're not wearing a mask, please, we beg you... <laughs> wear a mask. It's not a political issue. You don't have to be a Democrat to wear a mask. It doesn't make you any less of a Republican to wear a mask or a conservative to wear a mask. For a second, I was like, fuck, just wear one that says MAGA on it. And then I was like, no, I don't want to condone that. But I have seen people that have <laughs> Trump Trump masks. And I'm like, you know, okay, that's fine. That's fine. I'll take it. I'll take, I'll take it. it over no mask. Exactly. Thank you. I, and I want everyone to vote. I'd rather you didn't vote for Trump, but I'd rather you vote than not vote. Yeah. Right. given the choice. So if you want to show your support for whatever on your mask, that's cool. And you know, Trump started wearing a mask. Yay. 
So now it's... Now it's the in thing to do. It's the cool thing for everyone to do now. Now it's everybody from every party is wearing a mask. Please wear your mask. Save a life, wear a mask. And stay socially distanced. My favorite mask says because science on it. And it's great. It, like, it just makes my heart happy. I thought your favorite mask was the one that had tiny, tiny penises that you couldn't see unless you were within six feet so that you could tell if someone was social distancing. <laughs> this is my yes. new favorite. Because <laughs> this is in your face like, fuck you. Like, just fucking wear a fucking mask. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> the tiny penis one was good. <laughs> My favorite one that I've seen is uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. It says, y'all motherfuckers need science. So we're also coming up on election season. If you are not registered to vote, please register to vote. 93 days. Prepare to actually vote. So yeah, wear the mask, register to vote. Black Lives Matter is still going on. It's still going on mm-hmm. all over the place. It's still really massive. It still needs your support. If you are in a town that has protests, if you cannot protest for your own safety or wellness reasons, definitely donate or provide support in any way that you can to those groups. They're very, very, very important. Black Lives Matter doesn't mean other people don't matter. <laughs> it's yes. not a racist statement. It's mm-hmm. just a statement that Black Lives Matter. <laughs> Just a statement. <laughs> oh, man. Not political. It's not political in the sense that it's an ethical question. Exactly. It has to be voted on by politics, and that's what's happening right now is Good point. that we're campaigning to have the vote change. But it should not be a partisan issue. Yeah. I saw a chart today that said that America is the second, and by like huge margins, like 56 people per million or something per capita death by our police officers. Yeah, something ridiculous. We're the second right after the Republic of Congo. Almost all of the European Union is one to five deaths per million. So they're on a scale of between 10 and 50 times better than us at not killing their own citizens with police officers. And that's all citizens. That's not even a racial question. That's just all citizens. So I don't know why anybody thinks that our police officers being hyper-militaristic and attacking everybody's great. I don't like having 10 times the chance of being randomly killed by a police officer personally. Yeah. So yeah, support those protests because it could save your life to have a better justice system as just as much as it could save anyone else's. All right, what topic would a couple to choose from today? Shoot them out. Let's hear it. All right, so some interesting topics. Habit formation, because a lot of times we're suggesting stuff that actually requires you to form a habit, but it actually takes a long time to do. Hmm. Taking responsibility, a counterculture push towards being proactive and taking responsibility for as much as you can rather than shirking, attempting to avoid responsibility and the benefits of doing that. In Intent versus outcome. So the ethical difference between what you're trying to have happen and what actually happens and what that means for how you decide if someone's problematic or not, basically. I do think we need to do an updated consent episode. The consent episode was like our second episode way back when. It doesn't have nearly enough views. I have a lot of updated language that I think is a little bit better and hits more of the major issues and a catchy acronym. unicorn hunting we keep promising david we're going to do it eventually and just because it's hilarious monogamy might be my kink (laughs) (laughs) i vote either the third one which i cannot remember what you said it is or consent i mean i'm down for consent for sure just because i got an argument with somebody about difference between consensual and ethical the other day 
All right, let's do consent. Yeah, let's. I'm very curious about your argument. Do tell. Consensual does just doesn't mean ethical. Just because somebody consents to something doesn't mean it's ethical. All right. It was in response to a thread about the daddy little girl kink. Like the daddy little girl relationship. Okay. And somebody had a question as if it was ethical and not commenting on the kink at all. Everybody was just very much, very fluid with the words consensual and ethical. And I said, hey, I just want to put this out there, guys. Consensual is not synonymous with ethical. They're not interchangeable. Absolutely not. I said, I'm not saying anything about your kink. I'm not not commenting on that. I'm purely commenting on your use of language. Please be careful because they don't mean the same thing. And Jesus H. Christ... Did I get jumped on? Sure. Goodness. Because everybody was like, how can you say this? It's at, and I consent and it's all it's all on the up. Dude, I was not saying anything about your fucking kink. Nothing. I just don't want you to use those words synonymously because they are not. Yeah. I remember brushing up against this once before. Yeah. I see your point. I don't know much about like what would make, I mean, like I understand what consent is. I understand what ethics are, but I do see that they can cross, but that they don't have to cross. Right. I gave the great example that Michael always gives about the guy consenting to being murdered and chopped up and and what have you. Ah. It doesn't mean it's ethical. And eaten. And eaten, right. Right. Which doesn't make it ethical just because it was consensual. Sure. And I know I'm going to get shit for this. Let me put this out there. I like to get beat with the rest of them. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I loved... You know, love some rough play. Mandy goes really far on the non-consensual side of things. Yeah, but is it ethical? Fuck no, it's not ethical. (laughs) It's not ethical. But it's absolutely 100% consensual, but not fucking ethical. (laughs) And like I told them, I said, just Hmm. because it's not ethical doesn't mean you can't do it. You just need to know it's not ethical. Wait, hold on. I want to go back to that point because I think I heard you say... Yeah. I'm curious about that. You don't think that consensual non-consent is ethical, but you like it? I'm not weighing in. I'm paraphrasing back what I heard as a listening skill. Right. I don't think consensual non-consent is ethical. That makes sense. And I don't think getting the shit beat out of you, which again, I'm raising my hand for. Like, I love some rough play. Interesting. Not fucking ethical, though. (laughs) Like, it's just not. Uh, Okay. <laughs> and to be to be quite honest, there's a lot of kink that isn't ethical. Probably, yeah. But it's absolutely 100% can be consensual. What, what, why, what, um, so this this is leading me to the question, like, what exactly is ethical then? You, you got me, like, to the brood of the words, and now I'm like, well, wait a minute, what is it then? What you're saying about the consent and ethics and things that are consensual not being ethical, but consenting to it is still, like, something, like, like you say, the rough play, like, you vouch for it, but it's not ethical, makes me wonder, well, then, what is ethical? And is it okay to participate in something that's not ethical? Like with the murderer thing, the the being cannibalized, like that's not ethical and you shouldn't participate that as far as I'm concerned. But Q Michael. Like, so what is ethical then? I guess I, I'm 
You've made me confused. You've given me a reason to pause. The whole time I was hearing these discussions, I'm sort of twisting back and forth in my head which definition, and that's the problem that you're using. Because firstly, consent isn't black and white. Consent is definitely a spectrum. Okay, yeah, I see that. Ironically, what most people call consent is the breaking point where you fall off the spectrum. It's the furthest part, yeah. Okay. There is the A and not A question. Is it consensual or not? Mm -hmm. But once it's consensual, there's still an entire spectrum of consent. And the bottom end of that spectrum is still very unethical, even though it's consensual. Mm -hmm. Okay. The bottom basement version of consent, the lowest possible bar, is the legal definition. Okay. So if you meet the legal definition for consent, which in most cases just means not saying no, yeah. Then you're on the spectrum now. And we have to talk about it as being somewhat consensual. But obviously we know that lots of really unethical things happen right at that line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what people will say, it's consensual, it's legal, it's fine. <laughs> and you're going, okay, well, that's definitely not the case. Yeah. And then we've talked before also that ethics has three zones. There's the ethically mandatory, okay. the ethically forbidden, okay. and then there's the gray zone in the middle where most actual ethics work takes place. Okay, that makes sense. So that's the spectrum. Where you are on the gray ethics spectrum. Okay. Are you toward the side of the spectrum that I would call laudable? Or are you towards the side of the spectrum that I would call reprehensible? Mm, okay. <laughs> right? Like, where are you on that spectrum is mostly what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you have to do the things that are morally required. And you have to avoid the things. Okay, now, can I stop you for a minute? For Can I stop you for a second, Michael? Because that's yeah. one of the things that we got into was morals as well. And I tried to explain to them that morals are personal. Yeah. Whereas ethics are not necessarily. So ethics is social is what you're saying. There's, again, the difference between technical definition and popular use. Right. Okay. In popular use, morals and ethics are used mostly interchangeably at this point. Okay. Yeah. Yes. It's ethics philosophy. I have a degree in applied ethics. I don't have a degree in applied morals. Sure. Okay. Okay. And even when you think of the term moral or more, it's like a personal anchor. Like that's sort of what the term right. indicates. Granted, people will talk about you being moral. They actually mean that not to mean that you have morals but that you have good morals right. but by good they mean pro-social and by pro-social we mean ethical they mean ethical okay yeah. so since, since something is ethical it's pro-social so what ends up happening moral ends up becoming synonymous with ethical because we assume not morals but that being moral is interacting well with the people around you which is itself what ethics is talking about okay. and sometimes I do that where I use them sort of interchangeably as well because that is the common usage of the language so unless I'm getting okay. very specific and saying this is exactly how I want to mean it. So we have those three different zones of ethics. We have the consent spectrum issue. And then we have the question of the definition of consent. Mm -hmm. The legal definition of consent has a lot of interesting notes that we might not want to have always, but should always be considered in the consent spectrum. So for instance, you can be decided by the state, declared by your legal body, to be incompetent to make your own decisions. In which case you cannot consent to things, right? So anyone under 18 can't consent. Anyone that has dementia can't consent. Anybody under certain influences of drugs can't legally consent. Anybody that has certain other mental conditions that have been diagnosed and checked through the legal system can't consent Mm -hmm. under a legal definition. But I teach my son about consent and give him the right to decide who can and cannot hug him right? because that's really important. And so he obviously exercises consent. And there is certainly a consent spectrum, which is to say that I have the legal, and this is why legal is usually the bottom basement, I have the legal right 
right to hug my son as his guardian, even if he doesn't want me to. That does not mean I should do that. Right. And it does not mean that it's consensual just because he can't make choices about consent and his consent has been given to me, the guardian, legally doesn't mean that my consent is synonymous with his consent. It is not. Right. That's where you get people who like to talk about the safe, sane, consensual concept. And then there's a new concept. I know that's replaced it. The reason they like safe, sane, consensual is because the sane part is supposed to undergird all those things that would be consensual but not ethical. Mm -hmm. So their response will be, well... Letting someone eat and kill you, maim, etc., is not sane, therefore it's not consensual. But one of the problems we know is that people who are not sane do not know they are not sane. (laughs) So when you're in the activity itself, the people who are doing these activities are not necessarily able and honestly have no ability to gauge whether or not the thing that they're engaging is sane. Now, granted, you might get lucky and one of the two partners notices and taps out, but you could also have two partners who both like the same insane thing. That's how the guy found the guy on the internet that wanted to do the cannibalism thing. (laughs) So it gets really weird because I definitely am a firm believer in euthanasia if you want it. Mm -hmm. Under, again, the gold standard conditions, which are a persistent desire for more than six months with weekly therapy check-ins where you display that consistent desire over that time frame, I think that you then have the right to terminate your own life if you would like to. Hmm. Because it's you who gets to decide what your life means to you and how it's valued and how it feels. And especially in America, and really everywhere, but there are so many slip through the cracks around what counts as consent, because people will assume that any form of desire to self-terminate is insane. Right. That's the definition of insanity almost. And yet we know there's lots of conditions that make life unlivable and entertainingly for everything that isn't a right. human, we're really dogmatic about it. Yeah. Like if your cat legs stop working your vet's gonna make you euthanize that cat or at least consider it because it's not ethical to leave that cat running around in extreme pain right unless you're doing crazy stuff like building it a wheelchair and giving it a quality of life somehow but if that's not possible for whatever reason if the cat can't take that or its hips hurt too much or you know if they're in a certain level of pain they're gonna really push the idea that you should euthanize them because it's clear that their life is not better for being alive still (laughs) But if grandpa yeah. doesn't want to live anymore because his cancer hurts so bad sure, and he's terminal, we've got to let him suffer. Unless you're in Oregon. Yeah, right. Because that's just insane to die. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Oregon being awesome. Yes, seriously. So plan ahead to move to Oregon if you need a euthanasia. Yes, yeah, that's what you got to do, <sighs> man. <laughs> right. <laughs> But and then it gets even more tangled when you have issues of terminal, non-solvable cases of cancer in kids. Yeah. So you've got a 10-year-old kid who's in mind-breaking pain, screaming all day, cannot see straight, begging to die. And people go, well, no, you can't. You're not a adult. So you can't make that decision. We can't trust you to make that decision. And so instead, we trust them to suffer through impossible amounts of pain while their terminal diagnosis kills them. Do you know if in Oregon, the parents could could opt to euthanize them under that condition? I do not know. I know that in something like 2004, one of the countries in Europe, I forget which one, passed a law that allowed children under 16 to choose euthanasia given the six-month parameter that I mentioned with the therapist, with the consistent desire and with a terminal diagnosis. And I agree with that. Nobody who's under 18 should commit euthanasia for psychological reasons. It should definitely be, you're going to die no matter what. You have terminal disease that is critically painful. So it also required the doctor to basically say this person has no quality of life. Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously also then consent from the parents as well. Of course, yeah. For 
for that to happen. Right. And I think that that's a coherent system for that. Mm -hmm. So the point is that that legal consent is very different depending on where you are. And that's a lot of times what people mean when they say consent. They don't actually mean gold standard top of the consent spectrum. Right. And so as we talked about with language in general, no matter how close you get to understanding what someone is saying, you are always a, a world away from understanding what's in their mind. True. You may get lucky and you happen to overlap for a moment, but you'll never know which moment that was. Mm -hmm. That's why I think consent is such a spectrum because you can never really understand if the other person is consenting and understanding what they're consenting to and all of the bases have been covered. So when I talk about gold standard consent, I mean consent that is as consensual as it can get. And I have a system for this as an acronym that pronounced RINC. R-I-N-C-C. Okay. And it's robust, informed, non-coercive, consistent consent. Okay. I like that. The way this works is the robust part is just to remind you that you're trying to give as much consent as possible. That anytime you think about a way, if you think of any way to give someone more opportunity consent than you have before, you go ahead and throw that on the pile and that that's the goal. So you want an enthusiastic yes, not just not a no. I think when people say enthusiastic consent, they usually just mean sexually. And here I mean consent of any variety. And sometimes right. you're consenting to stuff that isn't something you should be doing enthusiastically. Like, I don't expect you to consent to euthanasia enthusiastically. Mm, In fact, I right. hope you do not, if that's the direction that you have to go because of something. So I don't think that's a good for everything. And I also think because of the puritanical system that we're in, it can be potentially problematic. I'm much more interested in these other constructs like being clearly informed, doing everything you can to remove any possible layer of coercion and making sure that the consent is consistent and revocable at any time mm -hmm. is much more important to me than that the person does like a little leap or jump or, or the, and, it, and also how you gauge someone else's enthusiasm for me is again, it's one of those things like same. I don't know that I trust you to gauge enthusiasm. Right. Mm -hmm. I was comparing that enthusiastic yes that you hear about to your robust consent. It's similar in concept that yeah. the idea is sort of the same, that you want to go well beyond the minimum right. bar. Yeah. That there is a much larger world of consent beyond the bare minimum right. or the secondary bare minimum, which is they said yes. Right. Yeah. Right above it's legally allowed. Like, yeah, I guess is not consent. Yeah. No, fuck that. That is not robust in any way. No. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. And yes, when you didn't tell them all the things you think they want to know. And Can I just say, on a personal note, more than once I've slept with someone who has not slept with someone in a very long time and they're like, ah, I don't know, I'm unsure. And I've given them so many opportunities. Like, it seems like they wanted it. Gave them lots of opportunities to say no. And I was like, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? And it's so satisfying when they're like, yes, thank you so much for asking that. I am sure. It's so satisfying. It's like, oh, cool. We're on the same page. We're good. And then later they, they thanked yeah. me and I'm like, yeah, so satisfying. It's super sexy. Yeah, it, it totally is. So anyway. <laughs> so then informed, I think, is also a spectrum. And informed consent is a legal term that here I need to make bigger. And that's part of why a robust is there, because I always want to robust each of the other parts of this. Ah. Legal informed is the bottom minimum again. And it's going to be you have to tell them certain things as required by law. Okay. So I would have to come up with a list of the things that I think you'd have to tell somebody for them to count as informed for sexual purposes. So what I want to say instead is that informed is a spectrum. And again, we're going for the, whatever the, the most robust version of the spectrum is. And the most robust version of letting someone be informed is to tell them everything 
that you would want to know if you were them. Tell them everything they ask and tell them everything that you think that they would want to know given what you know about them. Mm -hmm. Minus anything that they've asked you specifically not to share. Okay. So if before you start talking about consent, for instance, the person you're with for some reason says, I don't want to know your STI status, don't tell me, or... I don't want to know how many people you've been with. Don't tell me. Then they're now informed that they don't know about that. Right. They've opted out of that information. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's part of this too. Informing people doesn't automatically give you a moral pass on any other requirements you might have around information sharing. So for example, if the person you're talking to says, hey... Can you tell me about how many partners your partner has had? You can say, I cannot tell you that. And you have to make your decision not knowing how many partners they've had, mm -hmm. because that's not something that I am at liberty to share with you. Right. And it's not relevant to your safety, because we can talk about my STI safety. We can talk about, you know, whatever STI safety procedures my partner has allowed me to talk about with how we treat STIs between ourselves, etc. Right. So also, I can't tell you this is a form of informed so for example if you know that this is the kind of person that wants to know how many partners you had but they haven't asked you yet you can say also by the way i know that you want to know how many partners your partners have had and i want to tell you that i don't tell people that because i don't think that it's relevant and i don't think it weighs in on your safety and my ethics and if you don't want to sleep with me because i don't want to tell you that that's fine that's your choice i'm not going to hide that i'm not telling you that i like that so that's what informed looks like and of course depending on what you're doing these can be a lot faster like if you're intentionally going out to meet somebody for a first date where you're intending to sleep with them at the end of the night and you can early on say this is my goal I'm trying to sleep with you mm. and here's just the safety stuff that you might need to know and I'm not going to tell you really anything else because I'm just trying to sleep with you and this is all you need to know for your own safety. You know, again, unless there's something where you know something that you know that they'd want to know, like you slept with one of their partners recently or something, where there's something really obviously forethoughtful that you're intentionally going out of your way to hide from them. That sort of thing is fine. I'm not saying it's not. You don't have to share your entire life story with everybody that you don't aren't trying to have these sort of deeper relationships with. But in the case of people who you're developing these deeper relationships with, again, this is sort of the, the highest level of consent. And if you have the conversation, say, I don't want to have the conversation, which I've read people on the internet saying, I don't ever want to know anything about my any of this stuff about my partners, and you both agree to that, you're informed. You're informed you know nothing. Mm -hmm. Moving mm -hmm. on. But most people want to know something. And then non-coercive and non-coercive is a huge one. Yeah. It's not one that we're going to be able to do in this sitting and cover anything else about consent. That's a whole other episode in and of itself. Yeah, seriously. So it basically means that you have to do everything you can to mitigate all of the power dynamics that are in play. And okay. to the extent that you can't mitigate them, center them so that people are aware of them and making their decisions around them. So a good example of this is the housing one in any variety is sort of an equivalent a common example of this. So I was dating someone, they moved in with me really quickly because their current housing situation, their roommate moved out and they were renting from them and they sold the house and they had nowhere to go and I enjoyed having them around. So I said, hey, come hang out with us for a while. And they did. But then immediately you have to have a plan where you tell them, I'm not going to throw you out of the house. You have nowhere to sleep tonight if you don't sleep with me or if you break up with me. Not that I owe you a place to live forever, but I will help you transition to somewhere else safe within a reasonable time frame was part of the discussion. Like if you move in, if anything goes wrong, I will give you two weeks to help you transition to some other place. 
Because mm-hmm. yeah. I definitely have had friends that was living with somebody and they fell out of love with them and they kept sleeping with them for six months and didn't even talk to the person about it because they were so scared that if they mentioned it, they would throw them out and they'd be homeless. Oh, I think you mentioned this person before. And I don't know that that fear was even grounded. It doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. Being homeless yeah, in America doesn't. is terrible. Yeah. yeah, literally illegal. So if you are in a situation where you control your partner's housing situation, it's very important to create a plan that gives them safety if you think you're getting real consent to sleep with them. And if you don't, and later they say they felt like you forced them or they had no choice or they hold it against you, you are educated enough to understand that that's a real problem that really was your responsibility to negotiate with them. Because you're the one with the power. Mm-hmm. I love this housing example. I never would have thought of that with the housing situation. I mean, there's just so many common, like, rules, I guess, for living together that I, it never dawned on me to enter it with a, by the way, if the relationship doesn't work out. I mean, I, I, the only time I cohabitated with someone when it was when I was married. Hmm. And so it, it never dawned on me, by the way, if the relationship doesn't work out, sure. here's a plan. You're not going to be homeless. Right. But even in shorter situations, like if you're going to a polyamorous conference and you're sharing a room with someone that you paid for, that's all in your name. Yeah. I'll sleep on the couch if something goes wrong we break up while we're here yeah or if you start to break up go hey i want you to know yeah or if you're having a fight like i'm happy to sleep on the couch or you can sleep on the couch or that even that is a big deal and they talk about all sorts of coercion in the form of sleep deprivation threats what do you mean okay so a couple of examples one example would be imagine in that case if it's clear that if they come to the room that you guys share, you're going to try and sleep with them. And they say, I just want to go to bed. And you say, I want to keep talking about this. And it's two in the morning and they're emotionally exhausted and they've been up all day. And your (laughs) attempt to continue having that conversation is basically causing sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation is a form of torture. It's a form of brainwashing. Oh, fuck. It's a commonly used technique for all of those things. And it's super common that that happens to people. Absolutely. That happened to me all the time in my marriage. And it's Mm -hmm. only this conversation conversation that I realized that it wasn't something that was specific to my marriage. Like, are you fucking kidding me? My ex-husband, like, oh my God. (sighs) Anyway. It's definitely happened to me in multiple relationships. Uh, it's a very common thing for men to pester women until... For me, it wasn't even like just that he wanted sex. It wasn't even like, I mean, that that obviously was circumstances that came up. But it, there were also like, we need to talk about this, whatever situation, this financial thing, this like right. tiff that we're in or whatever. It's a control maneuver. It's a way to get control of something. It is. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even think about that until just now and i'm angry now (laughs) so glad i'm not in that relationship and i'm not saying the person knew it consciously of course it's more that they had experienced that when they do x they get the result that they want where x is Mm -hmm. sideswiping with you in the middle of the night to start the conversation yeah this is super common and it, it seems so reasonable to some people too you know if you perceive sex as this need that you have and that the other person is your source for sex and has agreed to be your source for sex, then it makes this sort of logical sense to people to keep having the conversation. Again, here's the consent spectrum. So if they eventually say yes, they said yes. Exactly. That's the second bottom of the consent spectrum. Right. Right. They eventually said yes. Whether it was coerced or not, it doesn't matter because they said
said yes. Yeah. But it's definitely coercion if, for instance, that the partner says, I have a headache. Yeah. Or my back hurts or something. Right. And then you start having a very reasonable discussion. But where will I have sex if I can't have sex with you? And it seems reasonable to you. Right. But the thing is, that person is literally suffering from a headache. Mm -hmm. So at a certain point, that person goes, you know what? Just do it. Suffering through lying here is less pain than suffering through whatever the next three hours. Because they don't know how long you're going to go for. You could go forever at this rate. And if you want to have that discussion and you want to have it right now, and you want to do it in a way that's not coercive, you can say, are you up to talking to me about it for 15 minutes? And set a timer and negotiate amount of time they're willing to talk to you about it Seriously. and at the end of that time just accept whatever the answer is mm-hmm. so if you feel like you should be able to have that conversation that's what you ask and if they say no i'm in too much pain to talk that's it they said no yep they said no you are shit out of luck move on at this point if you're pushing for more you're being coercive you're literally leveraging their pain and sickness to get your way mm-hmm. man Ah, so many light bulbs going off in my head right now. Not that I could do anything about them other than like it helps me work through what's happened in my past. Well, and it'll help you in the future as well. It'll help you. Oh, yes, of course. Of course. And it will help you relate those things to people is the thing is that a lot of the people that I know who are the worst offenders for this didn't know at all that they were doing it. They thought they were being completely reasonable. They were totally acculturated into thinking this made sense, that they are being fair and fine. And honestly, are people that I think wake up in the morning and think, how can I be a better person? And yet do did all mm-hmm. of this stuff. That's that's very nice. Those people sound very nice. I, I don't believe that that was my ex-husband, but that's okay. That's... I'm not saying that was your case. <laughs> I know, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm fixating on my case now because I'm so angry about it. Sure, right sure. Now. We can move on. As you should. <laughs> no, no, it's good. But my point is wanting to do the right thing is no protection if you're not willing to do the time and research to learn how to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. I'm constantly talking about the obligation to learn ethics, that everyone has the obligation to learn ethics. And when you choose to not do that and then you harm someone, the fact that you're good natured and didn't want to hurt someone, it's just like saying, I never learned to drive and now I'm going to drive this car. And then you get in a wreck and you say, well, I I never intended to get in a wreck. Mm -hmm. My goal was to never get in a wreck, but I just didn't want to take driver's ed or have anyone teach me how to drive a car. Well, the naturally foreseeable outcome is that you're going to get in a wreck. To me, that still makes you culpable. Not necessarily that I think you're a bad person, but I don't think anyone is, I guess. But you have to understand these things and you have to apply them. The non-coercive part of your acronym is, I think, where the huge issue and non-issue of consent comes into play in kink. Because a lot of kink is power play. Sure. It is power dynamics. It's power exchange. Absolutely. That non-coercive has to be so very clear Mm -hmm. in kink because of the power dynamics that are being played with there. That makes a lot of sense. One of the more common ones is you need to tell your sub over and over and over and over and over until it's boring to tell them that they can use their safe word Mm. and you will not hold it against them. Because I have talked to a lot of subs who, for instance, don't use their safe word very often because they're afraid it will make them a bad sub. Their dom Mm -hmm. won't want to keep doming them. Never thought of that. And then you're really pushing past power exchange into actual non-consent. 
I'd feel awful if you found out that based on social norms of yes and no, that someone was saying yes when they didn't really feel like they could say no. That, that'd feel awful. Like, I can see yeah. why, man, that sounds so sad. And it's very person and, and cultural specific yeah. as well. So I definitely interact with people from, especially the older generation. You didn't used to ask for something unless you thought the other person was obligated to give it to you. You wouldn't go to someone you knew and say, hey, can you help me move if they were allowed? to say no. And so if they say no, you're going to get really mad at them because the only reason you ask is because they should say yes. Mm. And it was considered right. rude and inappropriate to ask for things. So if I go to somebody who's older, I always add a bunch of extra language now. It took me a while to learn this where I say, I mean this as a real question. I'm trying to figure out if you have the resources to do this, if it is an imposition for you. I don't actually know if you should do this for me or not. I want you to say no if you're not happy doing this. I don't want you to do it just because I asked you. <laughs> like, to, like I beat that drum to death because you have to to get them to really answer the question and not just feel obligated to say yes and then resentful and hurt that you ask them. That's one of the reasons I love Facebook for that kind of thing because if you're if you're a friend of mine on Facebook, you know I'll put it out there. If there's a need, I'll put it out there and just throw it out into the lake and see you bites. Can anyone help me move? As opposed to, mm -hmm. will you help me move? Yeah, yeah. It's just a, hey, well, who, what, is anybody free this weekend? Yeah. Sure. Because I just throw it out there and let whoever feels the itch to scratch it. So norms around responses are also going to play into that in a huge way. So we know, for instance, there's a lot of norms still around the idea that if you go on a date and someone pays for enough things that, not saying you owe them yeah. sex, but there's still a norm that it's expected. Hmm. Basically, if you didn't choose to go Dutch at the restaurant, you might feel a social pressure. So if, for example, you do pay the bill for somebody else and you really want it to actually have been a gesture and you're not trying to coerce them, then again, at some point you should definitely have said, preferably before you paid the bill, <laughs> so that they have the option to decline if they're uncomfortable. I would like to pay the bill. I don't think it means you owe me anything. It's just that I'm in a good position to pay the bill right now, and I would like to do that mm -hmm. because those norms do exist, and they do apply pressure, and that is coercive. And it is a way to try and get what you want out of the situation without getting someone's, again, robust consent. Mm -hmm. Power dynamics and privilege are not synonymous but almost always, if you have a privilege over someone, you have a power dynamic over them as well. So, for example, male privilege. Mm -hmm. If you are a large bodied person dating a smaller bodied person, there's a power dynamic there that you have to think about. Not with knives and all, but if my partner, who is like 100 pounds, soaking wet, <laughs> decides to <laughs> scream and yell at me, I am concerned. I am not frightened for my physical well-being unless they again pull a weapon of some variety or threaten me in my sleep i'm going to attack you when you're asleep or something but as long as it's just the physical threat that they pose there is none whereas if i were to scream and yell and stomp there is an implied real physical danger to them from me and you have to be aware of that and i know so many guys that are not aware of that well i didn't i never hit my partner i just punched the wall right next to them or i just punched a hole in the wall while they were in the room while i was yelling at them or i just screamed and stopped no. all of those things are terrifying if you are two to three times larger than that person or even just bigger than them in general mm -hmm. as long as you're large enough to hurt them and they can't resist those things are coercive yeah right 
Even if you just buck up or puff up to him, because that's a reminder of how big you are. You know what I mean? Just like the sure, punch yeah. in the wall or... Well, and again, this is for any body dimorphism. So even if you're in a situation where it's the not as normative, but like you're a much larger woman dating a smaller man and you do this, same problem. Right. You know, the problem is if there's a sense that you are a physical threat to them, a significant physical threat mm-hmm. to them. It's your job to sort of think through those things. And even if you make that mistake, go back and say, I'm really sorry I did that. I understand how that could be coercive. But I'm trying to give you some tools to sort of go through your life and go, where might I have accidentally been coercive? Where might I have accidentally been coercive? And the best way to do that is to look for power dynamics and privileges. Usually where you have those things, you know, if you have upper class privilege, if you have education privilege, if you have white privilege, male privilege, there's a good chance in all of those cases that you have a power dynamic in play. Mm -hmm. That's a power dynamic that you have to talk with the person that you're in a relationship about. Like if you have a tense relationship and one of you is white and one of you is black, there's a power dynamic around the concern of one of you calling the police Mm. that if you don't address creates coercive consent. If you never talk about it, it's always an implied threat. So the non-coercive part is tricky and takes a lot of studying and work and identifying your life and talking with your partner. And again, it goes a long way just to talk and have the conversation. My goal is to be non coercive. If ever I'm doing something and you feel like there's a pressure that's unfair, I want you to understand I didn't mean that. I won't hold it against you for telling me that that's something that's on your mind. And then, of course, don't hold it against them when they actually are honest with you and vulnerable and say, I'm scared that you would X. Don't say, I would never do that. That's a horrible thing to think about me. I mean, do tell them you'd never do that, but not like angry yelling at them. I'd never do that. But more, I can see how that would be concerning to you. That definitely wouldn't be appropriate behavior. I would not do that. Here's what we can do to either agree with the things that I will do that are safe for you, or if possible, here are structures we can put in safe that protect you. You know, another really common poly question problem, because a lot of older people there's a huge number of older people who are poly, because they have gotten to experience what being monogamous for dozens of years is like. Mm. And one of the common problems that I have heard, questions I've gotten more than once, is I'm trying to date this guy. He seems really great. He and his wife are poly, but he has all the money. She was a stay-at-home wife. He pays all of her bills. How do I know if it's consensual for her? Mm. And you can't. You literally cannot in that situation. There's no way to know Mm -hmm. if that person wants this or is just terrified that if they say anything, their husband will throw them out in the street in their mid-70s. There's just absolutely no way to know. And if they've had a lifelong domestic partnership, it is absolutely a situation they should go they should get a lawyer and he should create whatever the financial Security. systems are through a trust fund, through putting a certain amount of the assets in their name, through, cre- you know, that they should create the financial security for both of them independent of the other so that the other person's whims are not in play. Mm-hmm. They should mitigate that coercion, that power dynamic. They should knock that out. Because if you've been together for life, there's no reason that as your life partner, this person should control all the money. That's just completely messed up. And if they have an issue with a, you know, they're like, I'm not good at choosing how to spend my money. That's fine. Create a trust fund where you get an allowance. But <laughs> but set it up in a way that works for that person so that they are secure. And then you can know, yes, this person was consenting. And it's good for you, the, the person who had the money, whichever member of the couple you are, because now you know the other person really is consenting and you're not coercing them. Yeah. So look for power dynamics, look for obvious coercion, ask the other person if they feel coerced around anything, talk about what that might mean, listen to this episode together, try and find all of them, iron as many of them out as you can. You're never going to be perfect. Again, our gold standard isn't that you're perfect, it's that you do the best job you're capable of doing. Right. 
and the more you practice, the better you'll get at it. Notice just sitting here talking, there's like five or six or seven things that Sarah never thought about that now Sarah knows to ask both for herself and for other right. people when she's dating. And that's how the process works. Yep. That's how you get better at it. And I'm telling you, once you talk it out and you iron out all those things, the relationship is much hotter. It does. Because you know that people want to be there. It totally makes it hotter. You know, you know that they're there completely of their own free will and not because they think they need to be in any way. And it is. It's so much hotter. Yeah. It's freeing and that kind of independence, having that kind of freedom together, just like, oh, I feel you, Mandy. So hot. That's all we can do for that one. Moving on. (laughs) So consistent is my next one. So I've heard people talk about continuing consent, but I want to use the language of consistent rather than continuing for a couple of reasons that'll become very clear. So obviously for me, consistent includes continuing. If they suddenly don't want to be doing this anymore. Yeah. Stop. It's not consistent anymore. (laughs) It has failed to be consistent. Stop. But also massive shifts in what has been the consistent basis of consent tend to highlight what consent is not real, where there's actually a coercion that you didn't realize, a power dynamic you didn't realize, or something else happening that you were not aware of. It definitely should throw a flag up. Yeah, right. So if you've been talking to someone and they've been saying for a very, very, very long time, I don't want to do X, and then suddenly they say, let's do it. But nothing that you know of has obviously changed. That should be a red flag where you go, okay, hold on. Why? (laughs) Why now? (laughs) What is different right now that makes you want to do that? And ask the basic questions like, have I been pressuring you and you feel like you have to? Are you on any drugs? Are you experiencing any significant emotional changes? Did something major just happen? Did you get a diagnosis from the doctor? You know, like that's something that you should check on because those sorts of big events will cause people to make choices that are not really the choice that they want to make and then later to feel bad about that choice. This actually loops in really well with the euthanasia. Most suicide desires are very, very temporary. Hmm. Less than a month inconsistency at a time. They might be recurrent, but they're not generally consistent. So the reason that you don't allow people to commit suicide if they don't have the consistent desire is it does not actually represent their desire as a person. Yeah. This is that same sort of thing. So if someone has had a consistent desire, for instance, not to be with you sexually, and then suddenly throws themselves at you, you should want to know what changed. Maybe it's that they've been holding back for a bunch of reasons or were scared of something, but maybe it's that someone that they were really interested interested in for a long time just told them no and it's sort of a rebound emotional scenario and now they're going to be really unhappy about it later they're going to feel bad about it later you're going to feel bad about it later you should definitely investigate that change because people don't change massively like that unless something happens most of the time. Mm -hmm. Or it could be the other way around. You could have been consenting to something for a year and then all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. And you stop consenting to it. Right. right, The the flip side is that you shouldn't ever feel bad changing what you want or coming to a realization about how you want things to be different. That's fine. But because... If that changes, that's just covered by the fact the person says no under... Like, it's not consent when they say no. It stops being consent the moment they say no. The reason I brought that up is because I've definitely been in relationships before where I did consent to something under duress and just kind of realized one day I'm not fucking doing it anymore. This is why this is happening. So I started saying no. So if that happens, like, take a minute. If you're that person that's receiving that no all of a sudden, take a minute and go, oh... 
Were the times before they said yes, were those coerced in some way? Oh, I see. So you're expanding not just listen to their no, but also now ask them, hey, right. what are these other yeses actually knows? Either I didn't or you didn't or both did not understand that they were no's. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. Someone suddenly starts saying no. I mean, normally it's predictable. Like if mm. your relationship is decaying and moving towards transitioning mm-hmm. and then suddenly the person says, you know, I'm not so sure I want to sleep with you. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't think you probably need to ask that question if the trajectory is very clear but if things are yes 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 nope yeah that's a good point (laughs) and even if you don't catch in that no that you used to do something harmful you might find out that something else traumatic has just happened to them that you can help with and how you can be a better partner so that change in consistency is always a canary in the coal mine about something traumatic happening somewhere and as long as that other person is in the kind of relationship where they want to have those discussions with you you should be trying to have those discussions when you see them and should be certainly worried about them yeah and just because the one person that's decided that you know the answer is no now has learned the problem maybe the other person hasn't so it it's it's good to question. It's just good to go, hey, yeah. let me touch on that for a minute and make sure that the reason it's no now isn't because it shouldn't have been yes in the beginning. And if they're not in the mood to talk about it then, I would definitely want to talk about it before it was yes again. Yeah. Yes. So if I was with a partner and they were like, yes, 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 no, yes, I'd be like, wait, <laughs> you didn't want to talk about it last time and that's fine. You were in a bad place, it sounded like. But we've changed again, so. <laughs> right. We disrupted our consistency. Yeah. So now I need to understand, I need you to make it make sense what happened here. So I yes. know that there's nothing coercive going on. I know that there's nothing that you feel like you have to do or that you're required to do. Or Yes, 100% agree with that. Yeah. Anytime there's a cultural script mm. that puts pressure on people, definitely try and undermine that cultural right. script because that coercion is very yes. real. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. hit it without describing it, but obviously the, the paying for the date is a cultural script. Right. The we've gone on three, four, five, six dates is a cultural script. If we stop having sex, you won't want to be my friend anymore is a cultural script, which may be true in your case, but you need to at least have a conversation so that people understand what you're there for and you're not coercing them in, yeah. in that case. And you've been flirty with me all night, so I figured that's what you wanted. Mm. It's Yeah. Also quite the cultural script. Right. Yeah, although that's just got getting consent, though. They didn't say yes here, or is at least the bare minimum, as we talked about, that it's not illegal because they didn't say no yet. So this is what I mean when I talk about the consent spectrum. The more robust your rink is, the closer I am to thinking that you are being ethical about getting consent. Yes. The less robust, or in philosophy, we use the word thick and thin for definition. So thin is barely described and thick is very well described. Mm. So the thinner your consent is, the less ethical it is. And so to put that to the ethicals before, it is ethically mandatory that you get consent. Mm-hmm. It is ethically banned that you do things that people have expressly not consented to. But in the laudable to reprehensible spectrum, laudable is way over up on rank, right? It is not at that bottom level. And in fact, intentionally targeting minimal consent for me is really close to being very, very downside of antisocial, negative, bad yeah. ethics. Yeah. <laughs> you're not really being ethical. Mm. And let's be clear, I never said that the daddy little girl dynamic was unethical. I said it could be. And I told everyone in the thread, I'm not saying it's unethical. I don't know your specific relationship. Yeah. And that's actually such a huge umbrella, by the way, for people listening who aren't as familiar with kink. It doesn't sound like it's a huge umbrella, but it really is. Hmm. The daddy dom little girl, which is DDLG, can be as far towards gentle as being almost more gentle, where like, it means that the dom 
Dom uses only positive reinforcement and nice things for their sub, and that the sub might just be playful and delicate or something, rather than getting punished, air quote, for their elements. Or it can describe the way that the power dynamic plays out, like the kind of tasks that you would suggest, like go clean your room <laughs> or something mm-hmm. like that, all the way to actual age play, actual age difference. Yeah. So it's a massively huge space. And like Mandy said, you really need to go, all right, what is your yeah, specific yeah. dynamic relationship? And, and then even inside of that, as we just discussed, the consent spectrum means that the very specific relationship that you're in is going to make a lot of the answer to whether or not what's happening inside of that space is ethical. And that's with a lot of different kinks, not just this specific kink that we're talking about. Absolutely true. So then there's the question of, is consent enough to underwrite the ethics? of any interaction. And this is a question I'm very interested in. The first thing you have to ask is, are we talking about situations in which consent is revoked for non-ethics, right? Because normally if someone is incapable of rendering traditional consent to young, incapable in some other way, under duress. But the thing is, if all those things don't count, then your definition of consent actually gets really thick and moves up the rink scale. Yeah. And most people don't go through all of those procedures. If you've gone to a therapist with your partner and separately from your partner, separate therapists, though they don't talk, yes. and they've gone over everything that you want to do and you've checked in with them and the therapist thinks it's all green light and it's a therapist that specializes in sexual needs and you've gone through all all of that extra work, you're probably going to have gone through the whole ring thing anyway at this point, intentionally or unintentionally, via that process. And then it probably is okay because that therapist would not sign off on like, that's the thing that kills me. They say safe, sane, and consensual, but they don't go to a therapist to find out if it's sane. <laughs> You're not an expert. It's sane based on them as the doctor person of today. <laughs> right. So we're left assuming that you actually mean self-decided consent outside of any kind of system that second checks consent. There are some things I just, it's part of the robust part for me, but you can't do anything that causes permanent harm I agree with that. to another person. Like physical permanent harm cannot be part of the system that you're engaging in. So I cannot say that anything that's consensual that causes permanent physical harm is ethical. Now, risk of permanent physical harm is a confusing scenario mm. where your intent is to avoid permanent physical harm, but it's possible. What if that's your kink? What if you're into branding? I have seen like the, the lacing thing. There's a question of if branding is permanent physical harm. I don't think of tattoos as being permanent physical yeah. harm. They don't lower my capacity or debilitate once they are healed. And branding is a body art in many cultures. All right. I just wanted to make sure that Yeah. So, so I definitely mean by permanent physical harm, there's an actual consistent continuing harm. So like, if someone told me their kink was to have their arm broken over and over, Uh, I would say no. Yeah. That's an absolute no. Or someone says my kink is to have small parts of my fingers cut off each time. The answer is no, because those don't grow back. That's just gone. Cannibalism. I want you to eat my arm. Right. Right. Fuck. Yeah. (laughs) For instance. There you go. But on the other hand, if someone came to me and said, hey, look at this rotten black tooth. The dentist has said it's no good. And I would really like to experience the no Mm. Novocaine tooth pulling scenario. And I was a dental hygienist who knew how to pull teeth or I was an actual dentist that knew how to pull teeth. And they were like, would you do that? Maybe, you know, I mean, I wouldn't do it because I don't know that I could pull a tooth without hurting them. But the point is that, you know, if it was already going to be done. (laughs) So it gets really can get can get sort of complex in that space. But assuming that I would not inflict permanent, I don't think you can inflict permanent harm and 
say that that's acceptable just because the person consented to it. Right. And I think that's partly because I can just tell you right now, no psychiatrist anywhere ever is going to say... He's going to say that's okay, yeah. Right, is going to sign off that that person is Hmm. even capable of making decisions anymore for themselves if they have this (laughs) desire to have permanent damage done to themselves repetitiously as a form of sexual gratification. Yeah. Nobody's signing off on that. I just promise you that's so far outside of consent that that's not an issue. So, but that aside... And other built-in issues aside, so age aside, so we're assuming that you people are of the age of consent for this discussion. Absolutely. There's absolutely no acceptance of things that are below the age of consent for this discussion. <laughs> Just get rid of that. But assuming that that's aside, then we have to assume we're looking at non-doctoral consent. And... That one's really fascinating. I can't get into the deep part of that. We don't have time. We're running low. We're running low on time. We're running towards the end. So here we go. Oh, but wait, before you, like, let's talk about the risk part. Because I, when I asked about the branding, that, I kind of cut you off on that. I wasn't going to summarize. I was saying where I'm, I'm moving towards the end rather than opening up a, like another side tangent of discussion. Oh, okay. So then one of the, the, you know, the other issues is that a lot of the things that people want to do the goal is not to cause damage but what you're doing Mm. can cause damage it rides that fine line right so a lot of people like flogging to the lower back and the lower back has basically Mm. all of your internal organs with no protections in it and doing the lower back wrong can hurt your kidneys it can hurt your stomach it can hurt a lot of internal organs (laughs) and happens consistently if you look at flogging guides they say start with the upper shoulders right. is pretty much the gold standard. You know, flogging around people's legs can be very dangerous or arms or any appendage like that because the elements can hit the arm and wrap and the centripetal force will dramatically increase the speed that the flail is moving and it can damage the skin and it can damage yeah. the veins. This sounds so awful. <laughs> it's very, very easy to damage you. I guess this is why I'm not like not into flogging. Like, no, don't hurt me. So there are things that are easier. Like spanking is really safe. Your butt is incredibly durable. My ability to hurt your butt by spanking it is basically non-existent. So that's in the clearly ethical, no questions asked space. Mm-hmm. It's going to hurt. You're not going to damage it. Mm-hmm. It's going to hurt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you get sensation <laughs> yeah. uh, depending on what I do. But, you know, I've definitely played the game where the goal is to see which one of us can last longer, my hand or your butt. Mm-hmm. And as hard as I hit people, I've lost that game sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I'm not a small guy. The open hand slap on the butt, you're just not going to do it. You're not going to injure that person. So we know that's clear cut. That's good. If you've got consent for that, cool. But when you start getting into high skill, high knowledge tasks, where is the, the ethics line for that? And that one gets really difficult because we know that people are super bad at judging their own skill level. Mm -hmm. Everybody that I've ever met who dommed for five minutes was convinced they were a master flogger. (laughs) An expert. I have never met anybody that thought that they were at risk for flogging somebody who had flogged somebody. And that can't be the, that cannot be the correct sentiment. No. A significant number of them must not be safe and know what they're doing particularly well. You know, this isn't an easy one where you can go get like a certification from a school. I mean, not that there aren't sort of, but they're not like, accredited like universities they have no good way to know if the dom school over there is a real healthy has a degree in medicine or something you're not getting a degree in flogging (laughs) right you can't get a degree or a certification in flogging like i can for welding or electrical work to know that i'm safe to do it and it's sort of like if you 
don't have an education in electrical work, it's not particularly ethical to go do electrical work for someone's house. Yes. I mean, not only is it illegal, but you could mess up and burn the house down and kill them. Yes. And I would say that even if it's consensual and they understand the risk and then you're yes. putting them at risk by doing that, you're not like, behaving no. ethically, even though it's totally consensual, partly because consent assumes under the informed part, it also assumes understanding and most people really don't understand the risks. Mm -hmm. mm. So that, that, so again, it gets more robust. So if you want someone to flog you on your lower back, it's probably not ethical at a starting point, but it might get closer if you decide to carve out eight hours to research how flogging affects the lower body. And so do they, to research how to do it safely. And you say, knowing everything there is to know about this, I accept the risks. And also, here are some ways I'm going to check to see if any damage was done and get ahead of it if any damage was done so that there's a reasonable chance that I'll recover. While they say, I'm going to know all the risks and I'm going to learn how to not hit you in those areas and I'm going to read everything about that. Then I think that the ethics goes up on that spectrum. You know, you're in the spectrum when you are risking someone's life and health and continued ability to function. And it spiderwebs out so quickly, right? So like, what was the situation with my with my partner that I have that has no kids versus the partner that I have that has kids and they want me to hit them in the lower back? Right. You know, if I damage their kidney and they die, they're not just taking a risk for their own fun. They're taking a risk right. with their family mm -hmm. for their own fun, for dependence for their own fun. And I think that's probably just unethical. I don't think you should be risking your life for enjoyment while you have children that you're supposed to be taking care of that you have created them and have the obligation thus to take care of them until at least some reasonable age it's just selfish it's like doing street racing for fun when you've got kids it's just really yeah. irresponsible right is what it comes down to right but again taking every possible precaution mitigating the risk in every possible way choosing lower risk areas like like shoulders and upper back and and instead of like your lower calves like your upper legs they're not like they can still rotate but there's because they're larger there's less rotation right asking them to err on the side of light hits and to stop relatively lightly you know the better you get on that the better you get but for sure, if you are creating an area of reasonable risk, and again, if, if you think of a theoretical counselor, psychiatrist, if you think they would say no, you're probably moved off into the unethical mm -hmm. zone. And I can again promise you, if you're having a, a counselor and a sex counselor and you say, I want them to hit me hard in the kidneys, <laughs> they're going to go, no, absolutely mm, no. Nope. You say, I want them to hit me hard in the lower back, but avoid the kidneys. They're going to go, okay, how do you know this person is an expert at flogging? Right. What did they... What's their credentials? How did they learn? How do you know that this is, a, you know, an acceptable level of risk? Because obviously there's an acceptable level of risk. I would never do it, but I don't think people that go parachuting that have kids are immoral, for instance, because the risk there is lower than the drive to the parachuting place usually. Hmm. You know, the risk to you of driving your car from your house down to wherever you can parachute at usually isn't near you. It's like a four or five hour drive at a destination. And while you're at the beach, you go parachuting. And the chances of you dying during that endeavor, very low. But obviously they're higher than driving to that same beach and just enjoying the beach with your family and not jumping out of an airplane. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's low enough that I think it's not a reasonably foreseeable outcome. When it happens, it makes national news that one person somewhere yeah. fell out of an airplane and their chute didn't open. It's just that rare. Right. And so that's really what it comes down to is, I mean, some level of risk, as long as that risk is except, you know, a very low level sort of mitigated trained risk. Okay. <laughs> but for sure, it's a spectrum. And the more risk you take on and the more responsibilities that you have to others 
resources that you're potentially leaving if you get injured or damaged through this risk, the less ethical it is. Because consent is not, not ethics. <laughs> so consent's not perfect, basically. And so it can't undergird ethics when you know that it's going to go badly. And this is sort of the basis of the, the common discussion. Why do people say that unicorn hunting is bad in polyamory? And here I do mean polyamorous or multiple relationship non-monogamy, not one night stand non-monogamy. Because I've had a lot of people point out recently that in swinging culture, a unicorn is someone who will just have a threesome with you one time. Hmm. And that's not a problem because what you were going into was a one night of sex, which is not problematic. Hmm. It is ethical then because everybody knows what the, what the expectation is. At least a lot closer to knowing. You don't ever yeah. know how a sexual experience will affect you, but you're way closer to being able to guess than you right. are to knowing how the relationship will affect you. And the other thing is everybody, just everybody who's in any kind of non-monogamy, any kind of polyamory, any kind of relationship counseling will tell you that unicorn hunting form triads have a disastrous mm -hmm. success rate. They have disastrous outcomes. The people in them are always harmed. There's always unresolved power dynamics. It is terrible. Mm -hmm. This is not organically formed triads or just surprising attractions created the triad. And then people were like, oh, this is convenient. Let's keep it. That's fine. That's not what I'm talking about. But a power couple looking for a third with a one penis policy and an exclusivity contract built mm -hmm. in. We just we know that's going to hurt the people involved. And people are like, well, as long as they're all consenting. And I'm like, no, no human that understood what they were consenting to would consent to be the unicorn. Yeah, right. That would never happen. So it's not ethical. And that's why we can tell people like, don't do it. And you can't make them. That's also not ethical. I can't force you not to. I can't attack you for doing it. I can't do any right. of those things. But I surely can tell you that it's not ethical to go around unicorn hunting because you know that that's going to be hurtful. Mm -hmm. Very last thing to finish off. Mandy talked about getting jumped for saying this. People don't like saying this because it makes work for them. And people don't like to have to think about work. This is the whole inauthenticity, hiding your head in the sand part of existentialism. Well, they first off don't want to think that what they're doing is wrong. Well, they don't want to have to consider that it might be wrong. Right. And they don't want to have to do the work to verify that it's not. Right. And they don't want to risk having to stop if it is. Exactly. And probably people who are the most concerned that what they're doing is definitely unethical are the ones who are the most upset about you for saying it because you made them remember that they're probably doing something unethical. Mm they don't want to think about and that's why they don't want to have this conversation so you are going to get jumped but the bottom line is that consent cannot undergird ethics and it would be great if it could because it would clear up almost all of the difficult gray areas you know if you're in a polyamorous group and you're in leadership and you need to know what to do did everyone consent then it's fine looks like a terrible shit show where everyone's getting harmed doesn't matter they consented everyone they knew what they were getting mm -hmm. into it's like but no, they're hurt. Mm -hmm. They're hurting. Yeah. And they're, everyone's at different levels coming in. They're different levels of understanding, different levels of experience, different levels of social like expertise, social clout. Can't do it. <laughs> you got to have your consent as robust as you can have it. And you have to understand that just because they're consenting doesn't make it ethical. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> I'm happy we wrap this up. This is, this is really, really um, interesting. There are some points that you mentioned I think this is a great question that a lot of people don't think about. Well, yeah, okay, you know, ethics and consent, like those go hand in hand. Well, I, and with our culture in America, I think that it's important that this is something that is discussed. 
All right. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us or comment below. We we love to hear mm-hmm. feedback from listeners and we are always open for questions about our episodes and willing to explain anything further that you need to hear. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Or thanks, people. Thanks, folks. Bye. Ha, ha, ha.